Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, I'm Nate, and this is Timeline Tapes, the podcast made by the YouTube channel Timeline. This is the show where we take some of our favorite documentaries and TV shows from our YouTube channel and turn them into podcasts that you can listen to whenever you want. This week, we're bringing you part two of Vespasian, The Path to Power. If you missed part one, you can find that by looking back on our feed. This two-parter explores the life of one of Rome's forgotten emperors. In the first part, we learned about his first military successes during the Roman invasion of Britain, and this is where we are rejoining the story. Once more, the voice of the show is Alan Armstrong, who will be joined by a variety of historians and experts of the Roman Empire. The Britons will have never have seen anything like Roman artillery. They will have probably assumed that Roman missile weapons, such as slings or bows and arrows, could virtually fire the same distance as theirs. But when they suddenly heard and saw these enormous catapults hurling large rocks, effectively, considerable distances, up to three or four hundred yards, they will have been horrified. It would have been rather like um, a Stone Age tribe today coming up against a machine gun. One by one, the fortresses fell or surrendered. On the highest, the Romans built their own fort to see and be seen for miles around. As a power statement, this is an absolute must. And he'll have come straight here to stamp his name on it and the power of Rome a great huge 50-acre beast like this rearing up out of the plain. You just don't ignore that. You are going to go and conquer it. You're going to get on top of it. This is a man who's conquering 10,000 square miles of southwest Britain with his own battle group of about 8 to 10,000 men, a wonderful independent command. He celebrates, as far as we know, 20 captures of Opiter like this. 20 times he will have put up a trophy celebrating his and the second Augusta Legion's victory. But it's all part of this process of we are on the winning side. And one needs symbolism, so one has to visually try and create something that people will remember. The survivors would certainly have remembered the day Vespasian came. In pacifying the southwest and subduing the warlords, Vespasian had done well. But the job wasn't finished. Rome needed to put in place a leader, one the people could respect. But more importantly, one who would respect Rome. Cogidabnus was just such a man. One of the ways the Romans conquered, besides obviously direct military action, was the use of puppet kings or client kings. That was introducing what we might call actually a quizzling figure into the society. Now, we know that the Romans arrived 
and probably in their baggage almost, they had this chap called Coggy Dubnus. The Romans then install him as a sort of puppet king in the Chichester area and then built him an enormous palace. The palace the Romans built for Coggy Dubnus at Fishbourne was breathtaking, the largest villa outside of Rome. Here he received the other chiefs as they came to visit from their mud huts. The message was clear. So was his authority. The advent of Rome brought good news and bad news. First, the bad. Resistance would be crushed, arms confiscated, Roman law enforced, and finally, biggest bogeyman of all, the Roman tax collector. Then, the good news. Peace, roads, towns, clean water, sanitation, commerce encouraged and housing improved, baths, theatres, entertainments. Tacitus puts it beautifully. Rude nations would be coaxed toward peaceful paths through comfort. Temples, markets, and houses built. The sons of chieftains educated in the liberal arts. Those who had spurned Roman speech would aspire to rhetoric and adopt the toga. And he concludes, mockingly, so by slow degrees, the Britons were seduced by pleasant pastimes, till finally the gullible natives came to call their slavery culture. If you're Vespasian in Britain, the first thing you do if you have, we've got some uh, southwestern British chieftain is go along and say, look, old boy, would you like to join the club? You have terrific benefits in membership. Uh, and if he absolutely refuses, well, then you have to take his hill fort. Vespasian returned from Britain triumphant. But in the emperor's court, a triumphant man is a dangerous man. The Roman sword, he discovered, is double-edged. Military adventures, if they're successful, are always going to be a career opportunity. Here's a big army, which is going to take a reasonable amount of time to conquer the whole of Britain, but they gave plenty of opportunities for battles. Vespasian is said to have participated in 30 battles, and it must have added to his prestige. The difficulty about prestige in the Roman army is if you get too big for your boots, you are seen by the emperor as a potential rival. From the emperor's point of view, you promote someone to success, you then leave him in the wilderness, you leave a gap of time, five years, ten years, between the holding of a consulship and the next plum job. In Vespasian's case, they would follow 15 years in the wilderness, hero or no hero. His patron Narcissus couldn't help. The Emperor Claudius had married Agrippina, sister of Caligula. She was a good hater. Narcissus was out, and so was Vespasian. Vespasian had returned from Britain a hero, but that did nothing for his career. So long as Agrippina disliked him, he was going nowhere. And when, in 54 AD, Claudius died and her young son Nero became emperor, his enemy became the most powerful woman in the world. But this was Rome, where change was swift and often bloody. Within five years, Nero had murdered his own mother. Vespasian's career was back on track. The next job proved to be worth the wait. Proconsul, governor of Africa the highest rung on the senatorial ladder. As governor of this vast and rich province, Vespasian would represent the emperor in person. He had the power of life and death, 
and more importantly, from a personal perspective. He had the power to raise taxes, not just for Rome, but for himself. He's definitely drawn one of the big ones. I mean, they all wanted to be pro-consular of Africa or Asia. On the whole, I think Asia had much more prestige, but they were paid the same rate, and they were paid a million sesterces for the 12 months, which is good, good money. Only, only 12 months, but uh, even so, handy. Because the posting was for one year only, it was understood that the governor would line his own pockets before retiring gracefully to Rome. There were certainly rich pickings here. North Africa generated 500 million sesterces a year, trading daily with Rome. We have a very good description from Pliny describing the great sailing ships, which they were, coming up the Campanian coast, having made the crossing from Alexandria, with their sails billowing as they sail northwards towards Rome. There will have been a scene of untold beaverish-type activity. Cargoes sold, deals made. It will have been a scene of, yes, continuous hustle and bustle and noise 24 hours a day. Lepkis Magna in today's Libya was one of the cities in Vespasian's jurisdiction. The marketplace is now silent, the surrounding alleyways deserted. But 2,000 years ago, it would have been a bustling source of revenue. The North African sea coast, I mean, nowadays we think of it as being relatively desert, but in Roman times it was relatively fertile. It was wheat exporting, olive oil exporting, and it was an important breadbasket for the city of Rome. In some ways, in ancient conditions, the city of Rome is closer to Tunis than it is to Milan because of the cheapness of sea transport. Africa was more than just the breadbasket. On the shore outside of the city are the magnificent baths of the hunters. Here, the Hunters Guild enjoyed the privilege of their commerce with Rome. The baths, sumptuous even by Roman standards, are an indication of the high value placed on their service. For it was they who provided an endless supply of exotic and dangerous animals to the public arenas on the Italian mainland. Not only did Africa provide the bread that kept the people of Rome fed, they also stocked the circuses that kept them quiet. Vespasian had the supply line that kept Rome alive, and he saw how it worked. And he saw something else. Africa's desert frontier required only a small military presence. Rome's rule was exercised here, not through force, but through persuasion. The Roman Empire has a population of 50, 60 million. It's governed by an extraordinarily small aristocratic cut. What are there, 150 Roman aristocrats out in the provinces? That's one for every 350, 400,000 people. It is very difficult to control 400,000 people with one, one aristocrat. So basically, the Roman governmental system in the provinces depends upon collaborators. It depends on winning the support of local administrators, local bigwigs, local rich men. And the system of government is one of cooperation between provincials who want to be Roman and Romans who wish to control and be enriched by provincials with the least possible trouble. What Vespasian should have learned, he would have already known when he went to Carthage, is this is a place in which I must keep my nose clean and, if possible, collaborate with the local provincials, the, the important local provincials. Again, a lot of opportunities for, 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 cor for corruption, but it is emphasised that he was surprisingly um, uncorrupt and, and conscientious as pro-consul people, and I hadn't really expected that. 
In fact, Vespasian earned a reputation for fiscal prudence touching on meanness. Far from lining his pockets, by applying what he thought of as good Roman values, he seems to have impoverished himself. I think that is very clear from the fact that he does come back in, really, in financial difficulties at the end of his, of his governorship. Um, you know, far from enriching himself, he's, he's actually reduced his, his fortune and ends up having to borrow money from his brother. Um, so, and again, you know, this is characteristic of other things we know about his career, that he was scrupulously honest, um, but he also had this deep interest in the financial state of the empire and its provinces. After a year, Vespasian's governorship was over. In the time that he was supposed to make money, he had made friends instead. But it was to be a canny investment. Where others earned cestuses, Vespasian earned respect. He was rather hard up when he gets back to terrain. He has to go back to, to, to making money as a transport contractor with, with mule trains, which was very much traditional in his part of Italy. Um, it, it, was, it was famous for its mules, and you know, the opportunities were there. There, were, there, there. there was plenty of work, but it was rather undignified for a senator to go into that sort of thing. They weren't expected to do that. They were expected to live off their, off their landed estates. So it was back to the hills, back to his roots. Vespasian had flown high, but he came back to earth with a bump. This was when he became known as the muleteer. He would have done well to stay with his mules. Against all the odds, Nero took him up. The young emperor seemed to appreciate the company of the curmudgeonly old soldier and invited him along on a cultural tour of Greece. Since Nero was a psychopath, his invitations were rarely refused. Nero went on a tour of Greece, the land which most appealed to his artistic temperament. There he gave a series of musical recitals. He would sing all day and far into the night. No one dared leave the theater. Some Greeks hit upon a way to escape by pretending to swoon with pleasure and be carried out in a state of feigned unconsciousness. Present on one of these occasions was Vespasian. Then, as Nero smote the lyre and burst into song, perhaps for the hundredth time, he noticed that Vespasian had nodded off. A moment's lapse, but it would change Vespasian's life. Indeed, had he not been a national hero, it would have cost him it. Dismissed from court, he fled back to Italy and hid deep in the country. The weeks in hiding could easily have been Vespasian's last. As it was, they were to be his last in the backwaters of political life. Suddenly, Nero needed a general more than he needed a friend. In AD 66, the Jews, ever the misfits of Rome's pagan empire, seething with righteous rage and fired with a holy zeal, revolted against the profane and scandalous tyranny of Nero falling upon a Roman legion and annihilating it. Now, defiant within their walled cities, they reviled Rome and all her work. Clearly, revenge must follow. The natural choice, the Roman general who had the greatest reputation at that time, and particularly for fighting in the East, was a man called Corbulo. Now, with Nero's immaculate timing, he had actually asked Corbulo to commit suicide one month before the Jewish revolt broke out. And when Nero made a request like that, one had to obey. So Rome had killed off its premier commander, Corbulo, and 
A month later, the news arrives of the Jewish revolt. This war would be deadly. Rome's revenge was seldom swift, but it was inexorable. Roman soldiers even worshipped a god of revenge, Mars Ultor, meaning Mars who has the last word. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Welcome back to Timeline Tapes. We're just learning about the beginning of the Jewish revolt against the Romans, and what this means for Vespasian, who had spent weeks in hiding. Romans had built an empire which is uh, circled around the Mediterranean Sea. In fact, they called the Mediterranean Sea Mara Nostrum, our sea. The main idea was that you had to have the entire sea encircled by proper Roman territory. And Judea is situated exactly in that position where it is actually the connecting point between Europe on the one hand and Africa on the other. And the Romans couldn't allow this part of the Mediterranean circle to slip out of their hold. It was very, very important, therefore, to put down any hint of rebellion in that area. Vespasian moved first against the cities of Galilee. At Jotapata, he laid siege for 40 days and 40 nights without let, unleashing massive force against the Jewish rebels. It was a ferocious battle that resulted in the annihilation of all 40,000 inhabitants. All that is except one, the general in charge of the defending forces, Josephus, survived and underwent a miraculous conversion to emerge as the great scholar and historian. Josephus is an extraordinary figure. Of course, he's the primary Jewish historian, but he started off as being a, I suppose, a Jewish gentleman in Judea, and he, so according to his own history, he advises people not to fight against Rome. It's crazy. But he was forced to become a leader 
of a Jewish group and was, in his own account, a successful, very successful leader of the Jewish fight against the Romans. But once surrounded by the Romans, the last few survivors enter into a suicide pact. Josephus is the person who organizes in which order they draw the straws. He draws the longest straw, and when they're down to two people, he says to the other guy, hey, why do we keep on killing ourselves? The other guy stabs himself to death, and Josephus walks out. What's charming about the story is he himself tells it, um, that he betrays his own cause, surrenders, offers his services to Vespasian and Titus, and gets accepted. Josephus went on to chronicle the adventures of Vespasian and to write a history of the Jewish war. After Jotapata, he was never far from the Roman general's side. And it is because of Josephus that we see another, darker side of Vespasian, a man who was perfectly capable of delivering Roman vengeance in full measure. After the battle, Vespasian held a court-martial, making a distinction between the residents and the newcomers whom he considered responsible for the war. Meanwhile, the Romans lined the road all the way to Tiberius so that no one could leave it and shut them up in the city. Vespasian followed and herded them all into the stadium. The aged and useless, 1,200 of them, were disposed of by his orders. The rest of the people, to the number of 30,400, he auctioned, except those whom he presented to Herod Agrippa. The men who came from his kingdom, Vespasian allowed him to deal with as he pleased, and the king put them too under the hammer. Every city that he eventually brought down, he um, he did the the sort of the normal procedure would be to kill the man who had fought, fought in battle, and to sell the rest of the population into slavery. Vespasian does everything that a Roman commander is expected to do, including win. He is going round there, encouraging, sending out reconnaissance patrols, maintaining morale. He's totally and utterly involved. He also put up with many of the privations of his army. He was a soldier soldier, as well as being a supreme commander. The Romans swept through Galilee, clearing the towns and driving the rebels into the mountains. It was here in the town of Gamla that Vespasian, within months of becoming emperor, would come within inches of being dead. As Vespasian's forces swept through Galilee, the fleeing rebels took to the hills. Gamla, so named because of its resemblance to a camel, was considered unassailable. 2,000 years ago, this was a steep, densely built town surrounded by sheer cliffs and packed on the day Vespasian came with refugees and extremists. His job was to flush them out before he dared head south to Jerusalem. The rebels thought they were safe. Vespasian knew otherwise. The lessons he had learned in Britain would serve him well. He was the world's best artillery officer, and he was in no hurry. By the Eastern Wall, he built earth platforms from which to launch his assault. From there, his artillery could provide covering fire for his massive battering rams. His masons fashioned missiles from the rocks around them. Beneath a hail of artillery cover, Vespasian began his assault on the walls of Gamla. Then the Romans brought up the rams at three points and, battering their way through the wall, poured in through the breaches with a great blare of trumpets and din of weapons. 
the most crucial part is to get as many soldiers possible in the shortest time. Through the breach and into yes. the city? Yes, so they start just to pump the soldier very quickly into the boundaries of the cities. His troops poured through the breaches and piled into the narrow streets, hacking their way up the steep hill. Crammed into the maze of alleyways, there was only slaughter and confusion. But the rebels had the high ground. What happened, the Jews were retreating towards the peak or the summit of the city of the site, but then turning their face and starting to fight with the Romans. In the chaos, they saw the possibility of a counter-attack. Now the first line, okay, was fighting, but the rest was still pushing from pushing the back. And the Romans had nowhere to go, effectively. Exactly. For the Romans, the only escape was over the rooftops. They climbed onto the roofs of the houses, where they rested on the slope. Crowded with men and unequal to the weight, these quickly collapsed. The effect on the Romans was devastating. The first assault on Gamla had failed. Vespasian's troops were stunned by their defeat. Then suddenly they realized their leader was no longer with them. Vespasian was somewhere at the top of the town, in trouble. The men who were with him covered him with their shields and pulled him to safety. It had been a close call for the 58-year-old warrior. But fate was not finished with him. Within days, a second assault was successful. This time, the rebels were driven to the highest, sheerest rock above the city, where many chose to jump rather than face the avenging Romans. Galilee thus pacified, Vespasian headed for Caesarea, and some remarkable news. Nero had been toppled, so Vespasian, far from Rome and close to the protection of loyal and devoted soldiers, could watch and wait while others scrambled for the throne. With Nero dead, Vespasian knew that the empire was in peril, for Nero had no successor and many enemies. The headlong dash for the vacant throne would plunge Rome into civil war. The year is 68 AD. When Vespasian hears of Nero's death, probably in late June 68, he's actually in Caesarea, that is the capital, the Roman capital of Judea. He's, in fact, just about to start the 68 campaign in earnest. Now, when this tremendous news comes through that Nero has finally taken his own life, obviously there's going to be a bit of a hiatus. He doesn't really know exactly what he's going to do initially. So, as far as hostilities against the Jews go, they're almost halted immediately, whilst he sits and waits to find out what will happen, which way the empire is going to go. The power struggle that ensued disposed of the emperors with terrifying rapidity. Galba replaced by Otho, Otho replaced by Vitellius. Fate was driving events in Vespasian's direction. Vespasian was far from Rome, and the empire he loved was disintegrating. The book of rules by which he had played had been torn up. With a battle-hardened army under his direct command, and the loyalty of five more legions to the north and south, with two grown sons as military commanders and loyal friends in key positions throughout the empire, it was time to make his own play. And he played like a master. He didn't head for Rome. He had learned well in his tour of the empire. He left Titus to watch the Jews. He sent his army towards Rome, and he went for Rome's lifeline, the grain supply in North Africa. 
He knew the army on the Danube was loyal, so while it drove towards the heart of the empire, he simply put his foot on the artery. At a stroke, Vespasian made Rome ungovernable. Without bread, riots in Rome were inevitable. Vitellius's grip on power began to slip. I think, perhaps, that Vespasian was in an unassailable position in the East. In other words, he could have fragmented that part of the Roman Empire off. That's what happens 300 years later. What was really difficult for him to achieve was to move out of the East and capture the centre. But luckily, he didn't have to do that for himself. The Danubian forces did it for him. The Danubian forces entered Rome on December the 20th, 69 AD. The boy from the hills was emperor. It would be almost a year before he would arrive in person, but new laws drafted by him gave him full powers backdated to the day of his victory. When he was a boy, becoming emperor was not a competition, but now it was, and he had won and could write the rules as he saw fit. In conferring on himself the right to act in all things divine, human, public and private, he combined all the powers of Augustus, Tiberius, and Claudius into one. And now he could return to unfinished business. I have never forgotten the Jewish rebellion. Once the civil war is over, thoroughness, pragmatism, destruction will follow. A vicious final assault on Jerusalem, conducted by Titus, resulted in the defeat of all but a few isolated pockets of rebellion. Across the Dead Sea, in Nabatea, today's Jordan, there is a harrowing sight. By the state highway, recently looted graves have cast up ancient bones. The fabric that still clings to them tells us they are the 2,000-year-old remains of refugees, Jews that fled the vengeance of Rome as the last of their rebels cornered at Masada chose suicide over slavery. This was a journey's end. Vespasian returned to Rome in October AD 70. His triumphal procession recorded on the Arch of Titus, a monument to the humiliation of the Jews. Riches plundered from the Jewish temples became the starter capital for a new Rome. Fire and civil war had devastated the city. Now the enormous wealth of Judea would fill her empty coffers. Vespasian was back. There was much to do. War and rebellion had seriously undermined the foundations of the empire. The ruling classes were demoralized. The army was running wild. The city's infrastructure was in disrepair. But this empire had built Vespasian. He knew what to do. He mended the aqueduct system at his own expense and made sure the citizens knew it. He rebuilt the temples. Farther afield throughout the empire, provincial cities became Roman cities by his gift and their citizens Roman citizens. The empire he loved was now his, and he took it all into his embrace. The greatest legacy of Vespasian is that he finds a metropolitan empire based on the city of Rome, and he leaves a cosmopolitan empire which is based on a much broader network of uh, elite families, elite groups around the province of the empire who have uh, a really enhanced commitment, economic and uh, an economic and political commitment to the empire. But Vespasian didn't forget the lesson he had learned in Rome as a young clerk. The people of Rome were still the basis of the empire. 
their happiness the rock on which it stood. At the heart of the old city, in the grounds of Nero's vast golden palace, he built an amphitheater, the biggest in the world, and he built it with money he had brought from Jerusalem. This was his gift to the people. He called it the Flavian Amphitheater, but the world knows it as the Colosseum. By bringing peace, by steadying the state, Vespasian gave the empire a second chance. The best was still to come. Rome had 150 good years left. The centuries ahead, the second century AD, will in many ways be her happiest. Vespasian rescued Rome, put her back on course, plucked the purple toga from the mud, allowed classical civilization to recover and before long to enter what will be the golden afternoon of Rome's 12th century history. Vespasian was emperor for only 10 years, but he had served Rome faithfully for 50. He never dreamed he would be emperor, and as he lay dying, the first emperor to die a peaceful death since Augustus 65 years earlier, he made a joke of his improbable career. Woe's me, he said. Methinks I'm turning into a god. Thanks for listening to Timeline Tapes. That's it for our podcast on Vespasian. Tune in next week to rediscover the lost army of King Cambyses. In the meantime, if you can't wait to learn more, just head to our YouTube channel, where we have hundreds of documentaries you can watch. If you want to reach out to Timeline Tapes, you can email us at timeline at little.studios.com, and you can also follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Those are both at TimelineWH. If you enjoyed this show, please subscribe, give us a five-star rating, and write a review, too. I've been Nate Fisher. This has been Timeline Tapes. Let's go down in history together. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.